I don't know about you, but um, the roller coaster of my life is, doesn't, it wasn't quite as tame as that one. Are you different than I am? So we are, I don't know, we're three weeks in to our series on the life of King David. And we're looking and seeking help for the ups and downs and the twists and turns that we might uh, experience in our, our own life. Um, the stories of King Saul and David, they, they overlap in our text. As we're reading through the scripture, particularly in, in 1 Samuel, we, we notice that, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago, that David was anointed king while Israel still had a king. Saul was still on the throne, but God had rejected Saul as king, and so he had Samuel uh, go and anoint David, this young boy at the time, who was a shepherd. I want you to anoint him king. And so Samuel did. And so that's the first time that, that these two lives, Saul and David, start to overlap. And for a time, while King Saul is still on the throne, we have interaction with him and David in, in Scripture. And so uh, last week, we examined the story of David and Goliath, one of the more popular episodes in, in the Bible. And we begin to notice that there is a distinct contrast in the characters of Saul and David. Saul and the armies of Israel when they were confronted by Goliath, the Philistine giant, the text tells us that they cowered in fear. They were afraid. They turned around and hightailed it back up their side of the hill and didn't want anything to do with this giant Goliath. David enters the scene and he sees this Goliath person, and he hears the way that he spoke of God, that he was demeaning to both God and to the people of Israel. And he said, you can't, you can't talk about God like that. And so with courage and strength that he found in his relationship with the Lord, he went out and, and he confronted the giant. So David became instant hero in Israel. Saul recognized, wow, this kid's pretty good. And he invites David into his court. He invites David to essentially to become part of, of his family. And so after we uh, get through chapter 17 and, and into chapter 18, Saul has invited David in, and David quickly develops this deep relationship with Saul's own son, Jonathan, who in those days uh, would be who we would think is the heir to the throne after Saul would vacate it. 
And so as we look at David's life, his life was kind of up and down like a roller coaster. You would say that um, the episode with Goliath, you know, was right up, right up there at one of the high points of the roller coaster. And being invited into the king's own family and part of the court would be one of the high points. But, but it's also there that we start to get to the edge David is loyal, David is skilled, uh, David excelled at everything that he was given to do. David was a person that you wanted on your team. He helped Saul be successful at what he did. We're told in Scripture, in these chapters in 1 Samuel, that uh, the people... And the, the military men, so the armies, and the general populace, they loved David. They were behind him 100%. And here's where the high point starts to become the tipping point. You know, when you get to the top of that roller coaster, and if you're in the front, you're just dangling over the edge. We're at, we're at one of those points on the roller coaster because in the people's praise of what David did, so we're in chapter 18, about, oh, verse 7 or so, the people credited David with more success than Saul. That was a problem. It's a problem for Saul. It doesn't sit well with him, and he just becomes jealous and angry with David. And in 18, verse uh, 9 or so, it says that Saul, from that point on, kept a close eye on David. Uh, anger and jealousy in Saul turn into bitterness and resentment. Uh, Saul felt threatened by David. Uh, Saul even feared David. He was afraid that um, David would rise up and overtake him and may take his job at, at some point, and, and he didn't like that. I mean, literally speaking, his stomach turned. He, he, he could not stomach the idea that David was more of a hero in Israel than, than he was. And so his heart hardened towards David, and, and he tries to kill him. Uh, in fact, killing David becomes a mission for Saul. He used every resource that was at his disposal. He hunted him relentlessly, unsuccessfully, but he hunted him nonetheless. We see these, uh, our scripture this morning is going to be in 1 Samuel 24, uh, but in the chapters between uh, the episode with Goliath and where we'll read this morning, we, we see a, t a low point in David's life where Saul has turned to anger and jealousy and is, is hunting David. And so there, there's a couple episodes. There was one time when Saul's daughter, uh, Michael, had fallen in love with David and Saul thought, well, hey, I can, I can use this to my, 
advantage. I'm going to set that dowry price so high that uh, it will definitely bring about David's death to pay it. And uh, it backfired on him. David was successful in the mission, married Michael. So Saul, Saul thought, well, that didn't work. I'm going to put David in charge of a thousand fighting men, and I'm going to send him off to war with the Philistines. Certainly with him being in that battle, he'll not survive it, and that'll accomplish my mission for me. David was successful, which only made Saul more angry and, and more jealous. So Saul sent some assassins to find and kill David. But this, this backfired when this group of hired soldiers found the Lord, and they began prophesying. So Saul went, well, the, that's a bunch of losers that I sent out. Let me send another death squad. Same thing happened to that one. Another one went, same thing happened to them. Saul finally went himself to this place, and he even had a, uh, one of those spiritual moments in his life, and it backfired, and, and he wasn't able to bring David down. Uh, David was typically a very soothing presence for Saul. Saul was a bit of a psychotic, and David is the psalmist. And, and so David would sing and play music, and oftentimes that would, that would bring Saul down. But a couple times uh, when David was in Saul's presence and trying to calm him down, you know, Saul was hit with a fit of rage, and he picked up his spear and threw it at David. And David dodged the spear and escaped. The night that Saul tried to kill David while he was sleeping, this is about chapter 19, was the night that David up and left Saul's court for good. He was running for his life. He ran out into the wilderness. You know, David didn't start in the wilderness, and he, we know that he didn't end in the wilderness, but he did spend quite a few years out there, hiding in caves and running for his life. What, what had started out as a, a high point for David um, in the court soon plunged David into years of this wilderness experience, deep dark valleys. And I'm not just talking about physical wilderness anymore. I mean, this was a dark, shadowy time, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, for David as he's out running for his life. These were hard years of exile. And I think that everybody at some point runs into the wilderness. We just find ourselves in deep, dark valleys that are difficult and challenging. But what we learn from David's experience in the wilderness is that uh, the wilderness is both a dangerous, but it's also a beautiful place. God meets us in the wilderness. God doesn't abandon us to ourselves. God travels with us into the wilderness. And he, if you pay attention and listen carefully, God will meet you there and he will speak to you. He will teach you. And that's what happened with David. 
David fled Saul's presence. He, he never once raised a hand against Saul, and he never once spoke a negative word about him. So David is gone. But that's not good enough for Saul. Saul rallied the troops of Israel to go out into this wilderness and find David and hunt him down and kill him. There were many people in Israel who suffered greatly because of Saul's wrath. Uh, several times we read in these chapters that, that David and he had about 600 men, uh, that they were almost captured but somehow miraculously escaped. One time in particular, some men from a town called Ziph came and they betrayed David's presence to Saul and, and we, just, we get the glimpse of just how selfish and narcissistic Saul was. Uh, chapter 23, verse 21, when, when these men come to betray David, Saul says, Ah, the Lord bless you. At last, someone is concerned about me. It's all about Saul. Instead of using Israel's resources to move the country forward onto bigger and better things, Saul instead used all of Israel's resources to hunt David down, which was his own personal agenda. His rage, his jealousy ca caused him to, to lose sight of the priorities of, of his people. And so in this episode where Saul, he, he musters this army of 3,000 select fighting men from all over Israel. He assembles this team to go hunt David, and uh, that's where we're going to pick up our story this morning, is uh, David and his men are on one side of a hill, and it, the text pictures Saul's men on the other side. And they're about to be captured and there's this Philistine uprising, and so Saul has to cancel out this particular hunt and go deal with the Philistines. But then, then he comes right back after David. And so if you have your Bibles, um, we're in 1 Samuel. I want to read some verses out of chapter 24, and I'd invite you to stand as we honor the authority of God's Word. This is where we pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 24. After, Samuel, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, To you I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up, unnoticed, and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and, and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, 
my lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, and so my hand will not touch you. That's where we'll leave off this morning. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Has anyone ever criticized you? Told you what you were doing was just wrong? Gotten on your case? Uh, tried to correct your behavior? Maybe it's just mean-spirited words that were meant to hurt you. Maybe there was some constructive nature about it. In the series on finding help with the ups and downs of life, um, I want to look at how we respond to people who wrong us or criticize us. Because if you're different than me, that's good, but sometimes when people criticize you, it hurts, right? Even if there's a measure of truth in the criticism, we don't always like to be corrected, and how do we deal with that? And so I think it's appropriate in dealing with the ups and downs of life to say that sometimes criticism puts us in one of those low points in life, and we need help figuring out how to get out of that particular valley. Maybe it's an email that comes your way telling you that what you did was wrong or that you should be doing it some other way, or whatever it is, or, or maybe people will just confront you face to face. Hey, we need to talk. Right. Or maybe it comes to you third hand. Whoever is getting after you has, well, if I tell this person, I know it'll come around the way, and you can hear it. I don't know how it comes to you, but there's a variety of ways in which criticism comes our direction. I, I looked up the word criticize in the thesaurus because I, I just wanted to see what other, what other words in the English language are kind of associated with, with this word criticize. Uh, and some of the entries were find fault with or condemn or attack or disparage, cast aspersions. I like the informal ones, though. The informal ones are this, knock hammer, chip away, lay into, lace into. Now, that's a good one. I laced into that person. Take apart, nitpick. You heard that one? I kind of like 
this one. I was thinking about how do you describe criticism? And sometimes criticism comes our way and there's an intent to hurt. And so I think criticism is kind of like an insult attached to a complaint once in a while. Um, we're looking at two characters in our text. Saul on the one hand, David on the other hand. And we've already noticed in their personalities and the way they respond to life that, that there's a contrast. One is uh, God-centered, one not so much. I'm going to do it my own way. So if we look at Saul and how he responds to criticism, uh, we, we look closely at 1 Samuel to, to read into this. He has disobeyed the command of God repeatedly. Uh, he was not leading the people towards God. He himself really didn't have much of a relationship with God. And we, we know that God had rejected Saul as king for these reasons. So I'm, I'm sure that there were moments, I mean, he's the king. He's the leader of the country Everybody isn't always happy with the leader all the time, right? And so I'm sure that there were complaints of the people that filtered their way up to Saul. So I, I'm imagining that, that there was critique and criticism of the way Paul or the, the way Saul ruled the land. Uh, but we also know that Samuel confronted Saul on multiple occasions, trying to bring him back to God. Saul refused. To listen. But there's another form of critique that we see in 1 Samuel that, that, that's just really subtle. Critique sometimes is real and sometimes it's imagined. You see, despite Saul's large, looming presence, physical presence as, as a human being, he was really small in character. And we see this come out in his dealings with David. And David's motives in the text are, are right. David's motives are true. David's actions were right. David's leadership was right. David was this model of humility, this model of integrity, this model of loyalty. And Saul was just jealous and angry. The Hebrew word is kara to burn, to ignite. He's like as glowing hot coals of a person. I, I use the terminology, when, when somebody gets angry, the light goes red. Everything else is just shut off, and the only thing you can see is this bright flashing light. Saul viewed, and this is the subtle criticism, Saul viewed all of the affirmation that David was receiving. All of the praise that went David's way, Saul was hearing that as an indictment on his own leadership. He was unable to see the big picture of team success. There couldn't be more than one hero. He had to be the hero. And so any, any praise that went David's way was a critique that came back to Saul that he was thinking, wow, the people just don't like me anymore. They're not following me. They don't care what I have to say. I must be doing it wrong. And that's what they're saying. In the end, the picture that we get of, of 
Saul is that he is a spear thrower. Okay? So, on the one hand, we're going to contrast Saul and David. Saul is a spear thrower. Because when he responds to his adversaries, when he responds to those who challenge him, whether it's real or whether it's imagined, he picks up a spear and throws it at him. He wants to dismantle them. He wants to humiliate them. He wants to kill the enemy. These people who were critiquing him had this ability to crawl up into his head and just occupy all of his mental space. And it drove him nuts, quite literally. And so he came out swinging. He picked up his spear and just tried to shish kebab people with it. Do you lash out like Saul when people get after you a little bit? Maybe, maybe not with intent to literally pin someone to the wall, but once in a while, the way you respond, uh, your words are intended to skewer them a little bit, to cut them down to size, to, to give them a piece of your mind. You're trying to destroy somebody on social media, passing the junk stuff along as a way of responding to critique, demeaning your spouse or belittling your children, undermining your boss or nitpicking at people. It's really easy to rationalize that kind of behavior in us away as, you know, we're just trying to help. I'm just doing my part. Any leader, any person, really, all of us, will always have people who are critics, who only seem to look for fault. They only choose to comment on your flaws. They only choose to comment on your mistakes. They only choose to comment on the things about you and the way you behave that bothers them. And any time that there may be a compliment coming out of these Type of, type of people uh, seems kind of manufactured, like, oh, uh, a little sugar to help the medicine go, go down. Uh, th these are the kind of people who have their red pens out, and, and you constantly feel like you're being judged. Like you're, there's a scorecard out there that's constantly being filled out. If, if you're one of these critical spirits, I mean, we're not going this direction this morning, but if, if you find yourself to be a critical spirit, always looking for negative, always commenting on flaws and mistakes, don't minimize that. Don't deny that that's you. Call it what it is. It's called sin in the Bible. Acknowledge that before God. Repent and turn and allow God to help you be a person who builds others up in love. Saul was a spear thrower. He, he initiated that sequence, but you don't have to be the first person to throw the spear to be considered a spear thrower. Uh, Saul threw the spear at David, and, and he missed, but but we don't get the picture in the text of David picking up that spear and chucking it back at Saul, do we? David did not retaliate. In fact, on multiple occasions, David actually spared Saul's life. David 
was a sparer. Let me get my words twisted here this morning. Saul was a spear thrower, a spearer, and David was a sparer. Didn't retaliate. Um, in the story that we read in our text this morning, the tide shifts. There's been several chapters where David is the one being hunted, running for his life. Saul is the one in hot pursuit, almost there, but never quite getting around to killing David. But in our text, the, the tide turns. Don't you like how, the, how real the Bible is? I mean, we even have a picture of nature calling in our text. Saul went in to this cave to relieve himself. And, you know, if he's dressed for war in pursuit of David to kill him, then he's, he's wearing robes and he's probably had some armor on. And, and so to do his business properly, he had to take all that off. So he disrobes, probably sets it in a part of the cave, and then we get a picture of Saul on his throne. The Bible's a real book. I love it. He's totally exposed, totally helpless, totally vulnerable. And David's men say, now's the time. You can take your revenge. You can eliminate this threat from your life. You know, thousands of years have gone by since this episode and we still wrestle with this tendency in our own lives. You know, we're taught in society, if you have the opportunity, you take out the enemy. Destroy when you have opportunity. Strike when they're vulnerable. Eliminate threats. You play to win the game, right? Mercies for the weak. You know, when I play games with my kids, if we're playing Candyland, I'm sending you back to the peppermint forest. <laughs> sorry is called sorry for a reason. That's a side note. <clears throat> David's men remember that they have been on the run for their life for years. Not just chapters, not just a few words, not just a few verses, but we're talking about years in the text right here that they've been running. And so they see this opportunity, and they say, David, you've got to capitalize on this. You've got you to take him out. They even fancy up their language with God language. Look at verse 4. Hey, David, God himself has set this up for you. The Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power comma, to do as you wish. Kind of literally there in the Hebrew says, to do what is right in your own eyes. They use this God language to try and be persuasive. I mean, if you think about it, nobody would have held it against David if he had taken his revenge on the one who had hunted him and tried to kill him. In fact, many people might have thought that David was doing the world a favor by eliminating Saul. 
It's real easy when we use God language to rationalize our behavior away. The problem here is that David is getting bad advice. God had not promised to deliver David's enemy into the hands for the purposes of killing him anywhere in the text. And I wonder if we're guilty of this from time to time. Uh, it's a great temptation for us to use God language to justify actions and justify thoughts. And worse yet, sometimes we, we project our perception of God's will on other people. We look at what they're doing and we say, you know, I think God's will for you is this. And we flower up our language using God language and, and that's a way to deliver our message. God said, we say. You know, throughout history, God has been blamed for some awful behavior on the part of his so-called followers. Well, David, uh, as you know, does not kill Saul. He just cuts off a corner of his robe. I, you know, until I was reading it recently, I always thought, how did he, while Saul is doing his business, how did David cut off a piece of his robe without recognizing it? You know, and so if, but if he had taken his robes off and put them over in a corner, then that, that helps me a little bit. <laughs> Not quite so close to the action. So David crawls up, he cuts off this piece of the robe, and uh, we really see the depth of David's character in that action. He doesn't stoop to Saul's level here. In fact, if you look at verse 13, when he's talking to Saul, he says, from evildoers come evil deeds. I'm not going to be party to that, says David. I'm, I am secure in my relationship with God, and that is what is guiding David's actions. Did, did you notice that right away, immediately, David is filled with shame He's filled with regret for even cutting a piece of Saul's robe off. His loyal heart prevails here, and he stops doing what he thinks is right in his own eyes, and he is checked in his spirit by the Holy Spirit. His conscience kicks in, and he says, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't do this. I've just symbolically dishonored one of God's anointed. And that's wrong. You see, when David was in the wilderness, he became aware of the holiness of God that we've been singing about all morning. It became very real and powerful in David's life. He was so immersed in God that, that David was able to see past his desire for revenge. He was able to get beyond his own personal desire to vindicate himself and get a picture of what God might have for this situation. And so he repents immediately. I was thinking that it's probably a good measure of how close we are to God by measuring the distance between when our conscience kicks in, when, when we feel like, wow, that was wrong. The distance between that feeling, and when you repent, which means turn, 
that's probably a good gauge as to how close we are with God. For David, we're close. David's conscience kicked in. He felt shame and regret. And immediately, he repented and he turned. The distance between awareness and change is a good measure of how close you are to God. So, we're wondering in our own life, how do we respond to criticism? What are some ways practically that, that we can handle it when it comes our direction? I mean, the human instinct is to be defensive, to take offense, you know, I'm just going to get offended, or to lash out. We start swinging and we fight back, or, or maybe some people don't, that's not their response mechanism. Sometimes people will step back. They'll withdraw, internalize it, and then it starts to become bitterness and resentment. And, and we know that criticism will always be there. And critique is not always bad. We, we gain ground. We become better people when we find out ways in which we can improve. It's a it's a way that we grow. It's a way that, that we stretch. When I, when I go to the gym and work out, the next day my muscles hurt. Why? Because I've pulled them apart. And sometimes cri being critiqued is like being pulled apart. But when those fibers grow back together, y you're stronger. And so there's, there's, uh, there's five things I want to talk about briefly. Uh, one way to handle criticism is to look at it as an opportunity to get better. 1 Samuel 18, verse 14, says that David prospered in all that he did. And the Hebrew word there is sakal. And the root word uh, for this word sakal suggests wisdom or wise behavior. And so, of course, when I look at a Hebrew word, I want to see, well, where else does it show up? in the scripture, and it shows up multiple times in Proverbs. Uh, one of the verses is Proverbs 21, 11. When a mocker is punished, the simple gain wisdom. By paying attention to the wise, they get knowledge. This is teaching us that a wise person is teachable. David had a teachable spirit about him. He recognized that he didn't know everything. And so he prospered because he was able to take what other people said, even if it hurt a little bit, and evaluate it and say, you know what, I probably could improve here. I'm going to be teachable in this moment. So he looked at criticism in some ways as an opportunity to get better. You know, there's some people who have a hard time learning from other people because, uh, you know, some people think that they know it all. And once in a while, I think all of us fall into that category. Well, I know about this. Well, do you know everything about this? And so it's hard to come down sometimes and evaluate what's in front of us, critique in ways that will help us get better. But the Bible says that the wise person has a teachable spirit. Second way is... Uh, silence. Another time that this word sakal is, is used, it's also in Proverbs, it teaches us to be judicious with our words. Proverbs 10, 19 says, sin is not ended by multiplying words, 
but the prudent hold their tongues. Hmm. It's interesting. A person who is wise, a person who prospers like David prospered, knows how to keep their mouth shut. You don't need to find fault with your critic. You don't need to make excuses. You don't need to blame other people. Accept the responsibility that's yours and move on. You don't need to pick up that spear and return fire is what we're being taught here. So one, criticism is an opportunity to get better. Two, sometimes responding requires us to keep our mouths shut, to respond with silence. Third thing, if after we've evaluated their critique and we've found it to be unwarranted, uh, acknowledge that you received the message, but then ignore it. You can't make everybody happy. And if you try, chances are you won't make anybody happy. People who try and defend themselves from every criticism oftentimes run themselves ragged and waste a whole lot of energy. There's just some hardened people that you'll never be able to please. It'll always be something. If you accommodate one thing, then, then there will be another. Nehemiah, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, he was really good at this. Uh, he understood that effective leadership often requires ignoring criticism. His opponents wanted to meet and discuss their criticisms of his work. This is in Nehemiah 6. And Nehemiah answered, I am doing a great work, and I cannot go down and meet with you. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? He was secure in what his understanding of God's will for his life at that time was. And so he was able to take that and dismiss the critics who were trying to distract him and, and dismantle the project that, that he was working on. So sometimes when criticism comes your way, after you evaluate it, if it's not warranted, if it does not match up with what your sense of God's will and purpose for your life at that point in time is, then move on. Ignore it. Fourth thing is uh, it's okay to insist on telling the truth. When, when you are wronged or falsely accused, it's right, it's even necessary to declare the truth. You may not be able to change your accuser's mind, but you can make sure that they understand the facts or at least hear the truth. And David made it known to Saul that he was clearly listening to people who were telling him lies, false counsel. David says, I'm loyal. I have nothing against you. I can even prove it. I had the opportunity to kill you, and I didn't. I only have this corner of your robe. He didn't go, David didn't go chat up his friends. He didn't talk badly about Saul behind his back. He went straight to the source. He went right to Saul, and he said, you're acting on lies. That's not the person that you're hunting. I am totally loyal to you. 
there's no guarantee that, and, and I don't think you should expect that the other person is just going to change their ways and their behavior. So tell the truth and, and leave it there. You don't have to defend the truth, which means we don't have to be defensive at people. Oh, that's hard. Because when we're attacked, we want to we defend our turf. Whether it's retreating or swinging back, or providing commentary or reason or whatever, it's so hard to receive a false critique and just leave it there. But David's example is tell the truth and move on. You don't have to be defensive. And the fifth thing is to endure it. Endure criticism. Keep going. Be people who persevere. And Moses is an awesome example of this in our text. He had the personality that was effective in handling criticism and being able to move on and endure it without throwing in the towel and giving up. I mean, Moses dealt with critical and cranky church people. They complained about the bitter water in Exodus 15. Moses, he took that criticism. I'm going to take it to God. He goes to God. The water is bitter. What does God do? God makes the water sweet. Well, once you have sweet water, well, you know what? Moses, we're hungry. There's no food. God, the people are hungry. So there's something they can, so God provides manna. They complained about the manna, too. Said they wanted meat. So Moses took that complaint to God. God, they want meat. So he gives them quail. And still, the people complained about that, too. I mean, Moses was the one, he stood before the burning bush. He stood before Pharaoh. He parted the Red Sea. He endured and overcame so many challenges in serving God. The people's grumbling and complaining was almost what put him over the edge. It was almost what caused him to quit. But his humility, his meekness, the Bible says that Moses was literally long-nosed. In other words, when his anger burned, it had to travel so far to get out his nostrils that by the time it got out, it was cooled down. Moses was meek. And he was able to endure all the criticism that came his way. I don't know which one resonates with you this morning. But I can tell you that critique will come your way. It always does. And so I would encourage you that when it comes your way to look, filter it, evaluate it. Honestly, prayerfully. Is there anything in this that I need to hear God and adopt into the way that I'm thinking and behaving. Life is going to challenge you, and either you can become better or you can become bitter. Saul experienced brokenness in his life in the form of criticism and critique, and he became a hardened person, bitter, resentful, it rendered him useless in God's service. And, and David, he also experienced brokenness in his life 
Saul just didn't like him. I don't like what you're doing. You're making me look small, David. I'm going to come after you. But David was able to use this brokenness to bring him before God and allow God to shape and to mold him into one who would become Israel's greatest king. He wanted to seek God's holiness, to seek God's heart. Saul was a spearer. He liked to throw spears at people. But David didn't pick it up and return fire. David was a sparer. And so when, when, when you face criticism and critique in your life, whether it's, whether it's real criticism or imagined, whether, there's, whether it's true totally, whether it's true partially, or whether it's just totally false, whether it's warranted at the time or just totally offhand and unwarranted, I just wonder whose behavior are you going to model? Are you going to respond like Saul? Or will we be a people after God's own heart like David and respond like him? That's the question for this morning. People of God said, amen.